Welcome to Ogle of Lanagus. Conversations in Irish mythology. With the story archaeologists. Chris Thompson. And Isolde O'Gollaghan Carmody. Please go to storyarchaeology.com for articles, stories and much more. We do this for the love of it. If you'd like to help out by making a donation through the website, feel free. Revisiting Mythical Women Episode 4 Revisiting Aravid The Story of Aravid The green grey morning is soft with mist. Aravid sits on the soft earth of the mound, her yellow cloak spread empty before her, covering the damp earth. All around her lie green herbs, no longer fresh and growing, for they were harvested in hope and are now scattered in sadness. Aravid gathers the measure of her cloak around her, and her thoughts are not soft. There was her father, Dien Caet, physician to the Dodonan, greatest of healers, who when Norda the king had lost his arm in battle, had not despaired. For though I cannot restore your arm, he had told the Blemish chieftain, yet will I make you the greater and with his healing magic he had constructed a hand of silver so cunning that each joint moved to grip and grasp as easily as a hand of flesh. Yes, the hand of silver had brought renown to Nurda Lovargut, and it had kept him the kingship, for no blemished man could be king. But it had not healed the lost limb. No, that had been left to Miak, her brother. Together he and Aravid had learned the law of healing, both becoming wise, each the measure of the other, until Miak had gone the further, and with the magic of his learning he had recovered the lost hand of Nurda. For three times three days he had kept it by him, preparing it with spells and incantations, and then, when it was ready, he joined it, bone to bone, sinew to sinew to Nurda's arm, and there it regrew. And Nurda was whole and healed. If Nurda was glad of the healing miracle, then Dienkert was not. A dark mood had descended upon her father, and taking up his shining blade, he brought it down upon his son's head, cleaving the skin of his skull. Miak healed himself. Twice more, Dienkeg brought the blade down on his son's head, each time cutting into the skull more deeply. Twice more, Miak healed himself. The blade fell a third time, and this time Miak's brain was split in two, and he died. Aravid sadly buried her brother under a mound of soft earth, and watched there as the bare soil softened and grew green with new grass, new grass and green herbs. And Aravid had guarded these herbs, harvesting them in their time, sorting and recording them, 
For there were 365 herbs that grew from her brother's grave, one for each of his joints and sinews, one for each day of the year, one for each illness that ever had been or ever would be. She gathered and garnered them all. But her father's dark mood had not yet fled. He found her where she was, and in his jealousy and anger he scattered the plants, destroying their order. And Aravid sits, still on her brother's grave in the grey-green morning. She sits with the basket of her empty cloak before her, until the time of his seed-healing shall come again. So here we are again, updating yet another episode from our first ever series, Mythical Women. Yes, and we've just heard Chris's retelling of that story of Aravid and her brother Meach and the apparently jealous father, Dean Kecht, which of course all makes part of the wonderful saga of Moitura. Now, long before we ever started work on story archaeology, the Aravid story was always one of my favourite sections within Moitura. Mm. Now, I suppose being a keen gardener with a well-stocked herb bed, I kind of saw Aravid as an early herbalist. <laughs> yeah, I think what always stuck with me was that image of her laying out all these herbs carefully on her cloak on the ground and that kind of ordering and recording. I just really loved the image. Hmm. And of course, because we loved it so much, we were very careful that we included it when it came to this great retelling, reenacting of the story that we did for Moitura 2000. Mind you, didn't we have some difficulties communicating the story to the dancers who were representing the healers? Uh, yes, they were there thinking, oh, were these lovely healers bringing the soldiers back to life on the battlefield? But we told them this story of Aravid and the sort of lead dancer turned around and said, what, you mean I'm going to be playing an axe murderer? Yeah, right. <laughs> Which is really one of the ways you could read this story. In 2012, when we returned to explore the story in more detail for our first series of story archaeology, the story just seemed to shapeshift before our eyes, yeah. and it revealed fascinating and multi-layered significance. Oh God, yeah. So enjoy our original conversation about this wonderful story, and we'll come back at the end with our comments and updates. Mm. What follows is our original 2012 episode. Well, I think that's a unique story. It's surprising she's not better known. It is, rather. Her father is probably better known than she is, Dean Kecht, the physician or doctor or healer, whatever word you want to use, for the two of the Danon. He appears quite a bit in the story of the battle or the two battles of Maitura, which is where this story you've just told comes from. He has at least four children, Mm -hmm. uh, there's Arva the Meach there. He has another one called Othriel. And, of course, another one called Cian, who comes up as the father of Lou. He turns up in when we talked about uh, Ethlin. About Ethlin, exactly. So, Dean Kate is also Lou's grandfather, which makes him quite important, you yeah. would think. But the Battle of once we're into the uh, saga of Moitura, that's a long story. In fact, we are planning to devote a whole series of podcasts to Moitura. It's such a great, great story. Exactly, isn't it? there's so much to it. But I suppose I better mention the beginning. The story of Moitura 
the battle that ends up with the two battles of Moitura begins with the Tour de Donnan. Now, the Tour de Donnan are these people of great skills who uh, appear mysteriously from their cities in the north and they arrive in Ireland and they look around and think, hmm, nice place to live, but they find it kind of occupied. And so they have a set to with a group of people called the Fearbolic. Mind you, it's a pretty good battle, isn't it? The preparation for that battle because they oh, meet yeah. each other and they go, let's have a look at each other's weapons. And they look at them and think, is it fair? Okay, we'll give you a year. We'll have a year of preparation in which we'll make sure that we've got exactly the same standard of weaponry. Very noble, very honourable. Yeah. But the battle still takes place and Nuada, the king of the Tour de Donnan, loses his arm in the battle. And yes. that means that he can't be king anymore. Yeah. Because it was a custom that any sort of blemish would mean that you'd have to step down. Is that yes. right? Yeah, and and that goes uh, historically as well, right up to the sort of historical cycles, stories about the kings and so on. That, yeah, you couldn't become king if you had a blemish or disability. And then if some kind of injury like that happened to you, you would lose the kingship. Mm -hmm. And this is because the king is supposed to reflect the wholeness of the land. Yeah, so a bit of a problem if you lose your arm. Yeah. Well, we've seen the story about how uh, Dienkecht gives him back an arm of silver, and this makes him quite famous, and he's often known as, you know, Lord of the Silver Arm yeah. and so forth. When Miak gives him his real arm back, that mm -hmm. causes a problem, well, at least for Miak. <laughs> Mind you, the story is really a little bit long. I mean, it's not just the first Battle of Moitura, the Battle of Southern Moitura. Yes. There's another one, isn't there? There is. There's the second Battle of Moitura. 27 years later. Yeah, there are thereabouts, certainly. And it's the Northern Moitura, which is near to where we are sitting here, up in sort of South County Sligo. And that's the battle between the Tua de Danon and the strange foreigners, the Fovora, who come from under the sea and have uh, laid the two of the down under a great tax and tribute and essentially the second battle is almost like an uprising of the Dadanan against their uh, Oh, it's another ruler. long story full it, of magic and I'm looking forward to telling it. But maybe you better get to the bit where Dienkecht and Miak and Aravid enter the story. Yeah, the, for the battle, again, there's uh, plenty of preparation for the battle on the Dadanan side. And one of the things that is uh, spoken of is that Dienkecht and his children, Miach, Aravid and Uchtriel, they went and made a great well, Uchtriel's well, which they then sat around it with the various incantations and herbs. And it was a healing well so that any person who was injured in battle the day before, sort of up to some of the lesser forms of death could be dropped into the well, and then they would jump out again the next day, fully healed. Right. Wait a minute, there's a problem here. Miak is killed by his father, and there he is at the well of Slonia, helping injured soldiers and dead soldiers to recover. Yeah. So death isn't really much of a handicap then, is it? Not, seemingly not for these people, no. So this is really a story about a family of doctors then? It is. Our Dienkert is very much seen as the founder of a profession, of the profession of medicine. He's very often, for example, in the making of Nuada's silver hand, he's seen alongside three other founders of profession. We have Luchta, who's the carpenter, Krednikerd, who's a brazier who works with uh, fine metal, silversmith and gold and bronze and so on, and Govnu, who is the, the great smith. There are, in fact, four law texts. We don't have them all as complete texts, but they are listed together as the Bretha Dain Caert, which are the judgments of Dain Caert. And then there's also the Bretha of the other three, of Luchta, Krednikerd, and of Govnu. So this was a set of texts which laid down laws and practices around each of these 
professions. So what do these law texts say about health and healing? Well, there's two aspects to it. One is of illness and disease. And in that case, you're looking at the laws around marriage and family structure to say who needs to take care of an ill family member. And then there's the case of injury when someone is injured either deliberately by another person or by their neglect. And then it has to do with the circumstances and their uh, respective statuses. But essentially, if you cause injury to another person, it's your responsibility to look after them and have them in your house uh, until they're made better again. So it's really all about social welfare. and so It forth. is, yeah. It's about yeah. Who, who looks after the weak. <clears throat> yeah. You know, the story of Aravid, at least at a first reading, seems to be that Dienkecht has taken this hope of a cure for every disease and destroys it through jealousy. Mm-hmm. I mean, what are we to make of this? Well, on on that level, it is quite a human story because we have a father who has essentially invented this profession of medicine. He's seen as the, the founder, patron of healing, but his children are better than he is. <laughs> <laughs> That's what always happens. Yeah, but basically, and, and it happens as well with teachers and pupils, that, you know, the pupil will eventually outstrip the master. And the sort of quite natural human reaction to that is a, a jealousy and envy of the achievements of your of the younger generation. So there seems to be... A, a family story about a jealous father. <laughs> yeah, I can remember what, what my father was like when, when my brother beat him at table tennis. Well, yeah. <laughs> That's only on a simple level. Yeah. No, it, it, it does seem to be a human story, but I think there's more to it. Maybe we should talk more about the Well of Slania in the Moitura story. Yeah. I mean, that really is a potent symbol of healing, yeah. especially if it can bring about physical resurrection. Yeah, you'd think that that would be pretty good, all right, and definitely gave them an edge over the Fovera. We've called it the Well of Slonia, which just literally means the Well of Health. Slonia is the general noun for health. It's an almost archetypal well of healing, and clearly it could do many different things, heal different kinds of injuries. There are still plenty of wells in Ireland today that are considered to have healing properties. They tend to be a bit more specific these days. Yeah, most of them seem to only be able to do one or maybe one or two things. Mm. But you're right, they're a very common feature in in the Irish countryside, and some of them have some really strange stories to them, don't they? We might have time to talk about wells in a future podcast, Mm. but go on, give us an example. Well, just as an example, I mean, there are plenty that do toothache or backache or earache or whatever, or even horses' footache. But um, (laughs) but one that I particularly pain in the hoof. Yeah, uh, one that I particularly like is Glanlagalt in County Kerry in uh, on the Dingle Peninsula. And Glanlagelt means the valley of the mad, the mad people. Mm-hmm. And there's a well there, which is Tubernagelt. And it was basically, the story goes, that it was an open-air asylum. That all the mads, mad people, crazies, were just herded into this valley to go and live off watercress and whatever else they could pick up. And this particular well then, was it was supposed to cure madness, which is a bit kind of confusing because you think, well, surely then people would get better and then they'd come out of the valley. Interestingly, relatively recently in the last, certainly the last 50 years, someone tested the water from this Tubernagelt in Glanagelt and they found it had very high levels of lithium. 
Mm. And lithium is, of course, a, a treatment for many forms of depression, including manic depression. And so it's really curious that this well that's been known to have this, what you might call folk cure, that there's actually a biochemical reasoning to it. <laughs> Maybe there's some sense in it. I'm not sure that's true for all of them. There's a rather beautiful well near Sligo called Tumanalt. Uh, it's supposed to be a healing well for several things, but one of the things it's supposed to do is if you drink the water of the well, it will make you good at football. Only in rural Ireland <laughs> could you get a holy well linked to the GAA. <laughs> now, I have no, absolutely no evidence as whether it works or not. <laughs> Although you did suggest, didn't you, that... Uh, oh, that, that uh, the Alt, it's called Tobernalt, um, which would usually be translated or might be translated as the well of the altar. There's a lot of place names with alt where it's uh, translated as altar. Alt is also the word for joint. And in fact, in the story that we've just heard, when Mech finds the original arm and he says joint to joint of it and sinew to sinew. Yeah, but it's alt fri halt and faith fri eith. So alt is the word for a joint. So it could be that tubernalt has some chemical, maybe glucosamine or something like that, that's good for your joints. Yeah, I think we're clutching at straws here. <laughs> it's complete speculation. Absolutely. But again, unless someone goes and does a test, how are we to know? It's interesting that there is such a tradition of healing wells in Ireland. And you've got Massively. this story of the prime well, of the mm. well of Slonja. Mm. Slonja. Why did I say Slonja? Because that's cheers. Cheers. Yes, You're I know. Well. I know. I know. <laughs> well of Slonja. There are other wells as well. I mean, the wells of inspiration and poetry, but they're really in a different class. They're, but it still gets at the, the fact that wells are to do with the spaces between, their limbic spaces, water welling up from an unseen place, from underground, from the from a, another world place. It, there's a, something of a paradox about a well. I don't know. Where is poetry to be found? Between the water and the dry land? Or where is healing to be found? between life and death. So we find Aravid sitting on a grave, picking life-giving herbs. Interesting. Yes, it's it's a wonderful paradox. And paradox in Irish stories definitely point you towards something important. And in this case, I think it is very significant that, like you say, the life-giving or the healing herbs that are growing on a grave, that you have this paradox that many medicines, those healing herbs, also act as poisons. To give a couple of examples, most people are aware of digitalis being used as a heart medicine, mm. which comes from foxglove. Is that right? Is it fox? Digitalis is foxglove. It is yeah. foxglove. Yeah, yeah. So again, it's it can be used as a poison, or it can be used as an incredibly successful heart medicine. Another example, which is one that I should go and research again, the yew tree, which is so poisonous that in fact the Greek toxic comes from the, the name for the yew tree yeah. and yet there was investigations a few years ago about whether it could be used as a cancer medication didn't you tell me that the actual name of the yew in the oam poems uh, oam or ogham there are poems which give meanings and associations to each of the letters and the letter i which stands for the yew the eo one of them is luth lover which is the sustaining of a sick person what you also have, though, earlier in the story, when Dienkecht is has taken a blade to his son Mieg, Mieg has just invented surgery. Mm. Because where Dienkecht was using an artificial arm... A um, prosthetic. A prosthetic, yeah. Mieg was actually restoring the original arm. So he was performing surgery. Microsurgery. Yeah. And what happens to him 
is that he gets cut with a blade. So while medicine is poison, surgery is also assault with a deadly weapon. <laughs> I suppose it is, isn't it? It is. It's just the one that we consent to. Right. <laughs> You know, in previous podcasts, we've found so much more by examining the meanings of the names of our characters. So what are we going to tell this time? Well, like you said, the meanings of the names, if you imagine sitting and hearing a story like this uh, 1,500 years ago, the names have an immediate meaning for you because it's part of your language. But when we're reading sort of a modern edition, they're just these collections of letters. We we no longer immediately understand their meaning. So it takes a little bit of, of ferreting and going through. We'll start with Miak. My first assumption was that it was simply another spelling or another version of the word Midak, M-I-D-A-C-H, which is a word that we find to mean physician or surgeon. And that seems to come from the Latin word medicus. Mm -hmm. So it's it's coming from Latin and it means doctor. So that, that was kind of my assumption until I went and looked a bit further and discovered that actually... Prior to that, there is a word meach, which is spelt exactly the same way as our meach in the story. And this meach is, it's a unit of measurement used specifically for grain, like right. corn. So yeah. it's it's often translated indeed as a bushel, the way that we would say a bushel of wheat. So or, it's an amount of grain or, yeah. or cereal. Yes, yeah, that has presumably been harvested and then weighed or bound up or processed in some way, that that is what it's related to. And Could it be like a sheaf? Or, or, yeah, or, like or, a sheaf or a bushel. Again, it's it's hard to get a, a, a precise uh, English equivalent. There are plenty of citations about saying that, oh, you have a meach of corn, but then you also have a meach of whiskey, for example. Right. Oh, so it's cereal, whiskey, and come on, what's Aravid there? Okay, so Aravid, again, has to do with measuring as well. crops as well, uh, which, again, it, it kind of took me by surprise when I found that. And in fact, one of the uh, citations given in the Dictionary of the Irish Language has both Aravid and Mich together in a sentence, meaning an Aravid of Mich. So, uh, and whatever this measurement capacity or vessel even of the meach, the corn, a bushel. It's still connected with corn or cereals. It's very much, yeah. All the examples seem to be around corn, cereals, wheat, and then later on sort of flour and um, and whiskey, of course, which is a grain alcohol. It's definitely grain-related right. alcohol. And But the Aravid seems to be, it's almost like in recipes where you see a cup of sugar. Uh, it's sort okay, of the, so it's more processed. Well, yeah, or it's it's the actual container, container that that will measure the yeah. finished grain or yeah. the finished cereal yeah. or it all, the flour. Yeah, it all says it's a measure of weight or you malt know. or malt. Yeah, malt. malt is, yeah, malt is also is also mentioned. So the and uh, the aravid would be like you know when you have a barrel which you know can will contain a certain amount of grain, then you measure that out as a, like a unit. So both of them are about measuring. They're about measuring, but. Particularly, uh, Aravid is more the measuring bit, and Miak is more the actual stuff itself, the grain itself. Okay, so itself. she's about recording yeah. and well, counting. Well, what, one of the roots, I think, for the name um, is from the verb Adriavid, which means to enumerate or to count or even recount or 
record. That's uh, the the verb ad riv, and so arvid would be a kind of uh, squished together. Form. That's amazing that both their names actually have a very similar meaning. Absolutely, and quite different from what we were expecting. Definitely, you know, there's, there's no surgeons or or herbs so to be found. Arvid is really a record of the harvest. Mm. How much grain there was for eating. How much there would be used for seed grain. It's yeah. about counting and ordering your harvest. Yeah. Well, that would be exceptionally important for the survival of the community yeah. and its health. Yeah. Uh, does this explain why characters whose names are all about cereals and harvesting would still be connected with healers? Well, indeed, it's interesting to note that in Old Irish, um, both linguistically and socially, there was no distinction made between the idea of a herb or the idea of a vegetable. They were both... The, the term love or loss was used for both of them. So a love or loss basically means a, a useful growing thing, plant that we will cultivate. And there was even a saying, apparently, that if you had leeks and celery in your garden, that was all you needed for health. So it might be more than just cereal crops, mm. but also all your crops. Yeah. So it's enumerating and counting and recording the crops and sorting the crops you have for different uses. Yes. But but that the, it, there was an understanding, if you like, that the that your diet, especially if it included good vegetative growth, be that the celery, be that the, the flour from, that we make bread with, that all of these contribute to maintain your health. So bread and beer and a few vegetables thrown in. Absolutely. Or maybe the whiskey in this case. Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> you can be sure of that. Now, you, there's one thing we've talked about, Miak, and we've talked about Arvid, in which case, what's the meaning of Dienkecht? Well, Dienkecht is almost the most surprising of all. Even the Dictionary of the Irish Language will cite these old glossaries. You might have heard of Cormac's glossary or mm -hmm. O'Daverin's glossary, which are lists of words and their associated meanings. You can find in those glossaries that Dian is translated as Deus, as in God, and that Kecht is translated as power, Kuacht, right? Mm -hmm. It seems that those are retrospective meanings because... Third so in other words, care. they're named after him. Exactly. So his name is being described mm. as the meaning of his name is because of the meaning of his name. Exactly. So it's circular. Yeah. Exactly. And you do find a fair bit of that. And in the that's glossary. later anyway. It is. But when you go back to the actual roots of the words, you know, their ordinary meanings, Dian means swift or eager or diligent or vehement, and Kecht is a plough. You're joking. Nope. <laughs> so uh, the eager or impetuous plough. Yeah. Yeah. This kind of changes the story. Here we have a very agricultural story, don't we? Absolutely. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. It's John Barleycorn. It's a very old in popular English folk song, and there's so many versions, including one by Robert Burns. Now, the whole song takes the story of the planting of the corn, or, or the, the barley in this case, the cereal, and all the processes in throwing it into the ground, murdering it. Treat, treats crop planting like murder. Yeah. And then when he sticks his head out of the ground and grows a beard and then becomes pale and worn as summer goes on, then they chop him down and it goes on, you know, and the, the miller has served him worse than that because he's ground in between two stones. And it ends up uh, the uh, huntsman can't hunt the fox or so loudly blow 
his horn and the tinker he can't make kettle or pots without a little barley corn and it's a it's a bit of a drinking song yeah but it's the story of you know, that you have uh, you have to destroy the seed in order for it to regrow you have to bury it mm. And um, and of course, what he, what he ends up as is ale or whiskey or, or bread or bread. Yeah, uh, but like you say, it's treated as if it's murdering a person, and it's it's using that as an image to talk about the the, the cycle of growing and harvesting. We're in deep waters here. Uh huh. I mean, Dean Kecht, the eager plough, cuts down the cereal. Arvid sorts and garners it to be buried and regrown. Yeah. Oh no wonder Mia comes back. Yeah. Comes up back alive. I mean, this is. <laughs> Yes, it's very strange. Yeah, and, and makes it strange that it's not better known as well. It does, because it looks like here, what we've actually got in this little-known story, which turns up as a uh, prelude to the Moita, part of the story of uh, the Kath Moitura, is actually a retelling of one of the myths that's pretty much found everywhere. Mm. If I can't use the word universal, it's pretty close. Yeah. Maybe one of the oldest being stories of Isis and Osiris. So an Isis and Osiris, they, they were brother and sister as well. Yeah, they were. I mean, that that's another coincidence. Yeah. There were, there were four siblings. There was, in one of the early pantheons that make up that glorious conglomeration of, of ancient Egyptian stories from thousands of years ago. Mm. And uh, there was Isis and Nephthys, the, 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 the two sisters, and there was uh, Osiris and Set, the two brothers. And it was Osiris who was supposed to have brought agriculture to Egypt, wasn't it? That's right. You see, Set was the god of the desert, mm. the ancient god of the desert and dry places. That's why he tends to be seen as the, the, the negative influence. Mm. But the adversary to... The adversary yeah. to, to to Osiris, who was supposed to be the first king of Egypt, who who gifted agriculture and brought the fertility and mm. taught them how to use the inundation of the Nile yeah. and make the land rich and fertile. Mm. Um, and, of course, the two brothers were constantly at each other's throats. Yeah. In fact, there's a great story which actually mirrors this one exactly. I hadn't thought of this, but it really does. Set wanted to destroy his brother Osiris, so he, he held a great party and he provided this wonderfully decorated chest. And he said he would give the chest to whomever it fitted, a bit like Cinderella. Yeah. yeah. And the only person it fitted was Osiris. And mm. as soon as he got in and lay down, the lid was slammed on and nailed shut, and Set had the chest thrown into the river. Well, Isis went looking for it and she found it and brought it back, but Set wasn't finished. And this time he wasn't going to put up with her going looking again. So he chopped Osiris into 14 pieces and threw them into the Nile. Well, she bit by bit gathered them together again and through bringing them together, oh, this is a long story, yeah. but eventually she found the, had to remake one piece that was missing and you'll have to go and look that bit up yourself. And through that, she managed to um, produce her son, Horus. Yeah. So we have, again, the sister who gathers together all the pieces to make her brother so that the cycle of fertility, fertility can, can go continue. On. Yeah. Now, there is another version in which he is lost in a tree and hidden in a tree, mm. uh, which, again, is cut down by Set. Yeah. After this, after he, he then goes to the other world mm. where he becomes the lord of the other world mm. and is, a, is the one that all Egyptians go to to be reborn. Yeah. He, is, he becomes the god of red death and resurrection mm. and is the most loved. And Isis becomes the most loved figure in Egyptian mm. mythology. Yeah. Um, so Isis and Osiris are the lord and lady of death and rebirth mm. and life and death. Mm. It's remarkably similar. Oddly enough, 
recently, now this is actually a coincidence, I recently was in Abydos, which is the place where Osiris was buried. In Egypt. In Egypt. And is the, the cult centre where every ancient Egyptian wished, if you like, it was the uh, the Mecca yeah. of ancient Egypt. And all Egyptians hoped that one day they would have a chance to go to visit the cult centre, to make a pilgrimage mm. to Abydos. And of course, if they were very lucky, get buried there. To be there, buried that there was, the was to be beyond belief. Mm. The pilgrimage went on for, for centuries and centuries and right up until Greek and Roman times. But what really hit me in this beautiful place was that as I reached the gate, I was offered beautiful little made corn dolls. And these woven corn dolls reminded me of the Bridget's Crosses we have in Ireland. Yeah. When I realised that here was I was being handed the pilgrimage badge. And I can tell you, I never saw that anywhere else in Egypt, just mm. at this one place in Abydos. Mm. Here was the symbol of death and resurrection being handed to me, you know, albeit yeah. for a negotiated price. Yeah. It was a moment of absolute yeah. and you, you brought, astonishment. brought one back for me, which I, I really love. But it's it's very much, very definitely, it's woven stalks of, I don't know whether it's wheat or corn, but it one does, of those looks cereals. Like wheat. Yeah, yeah. cereal. And the stalks are woven together and it really does look like the way that you fold reeds to, to make a Bridget's cross. And it might be in the same way then that sense of continuity that Bridget's crosses have been made in Ireland for who knows how long. And it's still something that gets done and you'll still find a Bridget's cross in most people's houses, particularly in rural Ireland. Even though the Bridget's cross is, is made with reeds and not with cereals, maybe because Cereals aren't that widely grown in Ireland, but you can find reeds just about it everywhere. It's possible that they were made from barley at one point. Mm. I don't know, because in fact, the Bridget's Cross, which was, is really another topic, mm. is associated with February, mm. with, uh, with the seed time the harvest. Yeah. Yeah. But here you've got the, this exact parallel with, say, the corn dolls yeah. that are found over England, the, the harvest sheaf uh, mm. that's brought in, the corn corn doll that's associated with the, with the harvest home, mm. certainly in England. Mm. But it really does connect the story of Aravid and Miak and mm. Dian Kecht with a story that's so well known that, it's that the death, resurrection, the the agricultural cycle of the year. Yeah. It's that important a story. Yeah. And yet it's been overlooked for so long. And I think the, possibly the reason that it's been overlooked is because certainly for the last century, we've been relying an awful lot on English translations of the Irish stories. Unless you know the language, the names just remain obscure. But as soon as you look to the actual meanings of the words of Aravid, of Miach, of Dian Kecht, once you know that it's, if you like, a bushel, a wheat sheaf mm. and an eager plough, the story just opens right up for you even though knowing the story and thinking we knew its meaning. Yeah. So this one has been a revelation for us. Absolutely, yeah. At the end of the story that I read at the beginning, Dian Kak says, though Miak is dead, Aravid will survive. I think the story of Miak and Aravid deserves to survive and be better known. Absolutely. And now for our 2016 updates. I have to say that I remember making this original episode with great pleasure, <laughs> not least because it reminds me of my trip to Abydos. Oh, yeah. Now, I know I said Abydos, but that's <laughs> the way I used to pronounce it as a child. Oh, yeah. Well, I think we've got a, a lot of leeway in those terms. But this 
episode just so clearly illustrated the importance of examining our linguistic finds in the context of the original language. Yeah, I know. And, and what I find most remarkable is the manner in which what is effectively a little regarded mm. side story in the Battle of Moitura turns out to have the quality of a foundation myth in its own right. <laughs> and how. <laughs> and what seems on first reading to be a somewhat brutal tale of the jealous father. It turns out to have far deeper significance. I mean, Aravid's story encapsulate that very sense of history making oh, yeah. that we were discussing in our midwinter special, Fair is Fair, where we explained to a certain extent those important stages in the advent of agriculture and just the impact that had on society and on culture. Yeah, we were examining Ian Hodder's argument that the development of a settled agrarian community depends on, what was it, a high level of commitment both in time and shared resources and that this commitment requires what he calls time depth. Yeah. An awareness of both the past and the future. That's the best I can put it. Yeah, and indeed, it's a moment of creating the concepts of past and future. And that gives cohesion to the whole community. And of course, Ian Hodder, just to remind you, he's an archaeologist and anthropologist who has spent so many years working at Chatelhoyuk. Yeah, close is, on 20 years. Yeah, and it's, just, it's such a fascinating mm. site and well worth reading up. In terms of the story of Aravid, we have what you could call a multi-layered story. <laughs> yeah, there's the human tragedy mm. of a woman mourning the loss of her brother and, if you like, seeking to create a memorial for mm. him or, or, or just to continue his work. Yeah, yeah, but equally, the story can be seen as a description of saving and sacrificing a measurement of foodstuff in the form of seed and giving it back to the earth to ensure a future harvest. And that means the survival and the health of the whole community. It is a very rich metaphor, and one I think that pervades the whole of the Moitura mm. saga. Yeah. That's what's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But to follow up this argument, we'll have to refer our listeners to Story Archaeology's entire second series. All 11 episodes. Yes. <laughs> No, let's keep it simple yeah. for now and we'll put up the links to other episodes on the podcast blog just, just yeah. so we've got a record. Yeah, we'll have to. <laughs> now, at the heart of the Moitura story is a quest to restore and maintain the fertility of the land. Mm. And I suppose you could say this is lost through the poor judgments of a king and his betrayal of good stewardship. Mm. And if that happens, chaos ensues. Yeah, absolutely. And it's that rightness, that core that we keep on going on about that's restored by the Dagda once Balor and the Fobra have been defeated. When Dagda returns that cow, the black heifer, the Blasgowan, mm -hmm. and what's more, the justly angled harp, that's the core Cethercor to Ireland. And Ireland is no longer a wasteland as it had become under Brett. However, we have to remember the poetry of the Morrigan, which mm. concludes the saga. I mean, here she makes it abundantly clear that the solution is not permanent. Yeah. The process is cyclical and abundance and justice must always be sought out and defended. It's a continuing quest. Yeah. And this makes sense of the so-called mystery of why the Morrigan makes a prophecy of the end of the world. Mm. It isn't the end of the world, the eschatological end of the world. Mm. She's talking about the end of the cycle and the new beginning. Exactly, yeah. And that this really is time depth in action. This really is predicting that there will be another winter and after that another spring. It's, it sounds so simple, but it's it's so deep. Another collapse, yeah. uh, another wasteland and another restoration of the wasteland. Exactly, yeah. yeah I like this. <laughs> <laughs> what I also find interesting is that that return of the cow, the black heifer, that covers 
the fertility and wealth that's created by the herding, if you like. It's the, the meat and the milk that you get from raising cows. But you have to then also have Arrowhead's story because that is all about the same cycles, but it's in terms of agriculture. It's especially the importance of understanding cultivation of cereals and herbs and vegetables of all sorts. Mm -hmm. As I've said before, and we'll say again, this term love in early Irish, uh, livana in the plural, it can mean either a herb or a vegetable. There's no separation. There's no separation between ideas of, if you like, a medicinal uh, substance or just something that you eat in your everyday well, diet. it fits in very well with the modern idea of health and well-being. It does, but so it's... So the importance of your five a day was <laughs> equally well known then. Well, it, it's even more than that. There's mm. descriptions in some of the medically related texts, like the law texts, that it was your physician who would prescribe your diet. Mm. So to have this apparent family of healers involved in this really important understanding of the cycle of cereal crops makes perfect sense in mm. that context. It's quite a holistic quality. Of it is, yeah. And it may explain why the story of Ruadhorn and his death in Govna's Forge is also included in the saga. Mm. Now, his death is caused because he, who is the son of an enemy and an enemy spy, yeah. seeks to observe the development of new and improved technology. Yeah, and let's not forget, one of the people creating that technology is Govnu, the smith. And his name, Gov, that pointy beaky bit that we talked about in the series on Moitura, it refers as much to the tip of a plough as it does to the tip of a sword. Mm, and mm. so when you see it in that wider kind of agrarian context, you understand then why... It's not just about battle. It's not just about the battle. It's about sustaining the whole community. And then it's Ruadhorn's mother, Brig, who's the first to establish this practice of keening for her mm, lost mm. son. It's just in case you didn't listen to that episode, yeah. keening is this almost formal lamenting and crying, the ululation. Yeah, I was just going to say yeah, the ululation. Exactly. Yeah. Which is still practiced in many societies and is still very particular to women. But mm -hmm. in Ireland also then included the creation of the keening poem, the lament poem, mm. which was an extempore form of poetry that women specialised in. But there's that human tragedy again. There's mm -hmm. that loss. And also the cyclical quality that uh, we are all part of. Exactly, yes. That while you may give birth to a son, you may also lose that son. But there's more than that, because Ruadhorn's father is Bresh. And it's Bresh who ends up, at the conclusion mm -hmm. of this saga, passing on that information about the timing for ploughing, for planting and for reaping. And he gives this to the Tua de Danon in the peace negotiations. So this whole story, it has themes of death and of rebirth. But of course, it's also got that core, which is proper time as well as proper place for everything. Hmm. In our highly speculative proto-story of Moitura, I remember we argued that the saga had early wasteland restoration themes. You remember the cow was a kind of proto-grail? Yes, exactly. You'll find that at series two, which was our series all about Moitura, and that episode number was 12, you'll find that. Yeah, perhaps the Arvid story does support this hypothesis. I think it really does. What I find interesting is that in a lot of the critical literature, particularly that done by the linguists mm -hmm. and, and philologists, the story of Aravid and the killing of Mir is often seen as 
a sort of like a literary flaw <laughs> that it, it mm. detracts from the main flow of mm. the story which is obviously all about the battle and it's often also discussed in terms of human characters mm. that it's a story about a father who kills his son in professional jealousy and nobody seems to go any deeper with it well no you find this occasional offhand remark saying oh it, it seems to be part of a vegetative myth but it never goes into what that actually means. Or how it connects to the, the main story. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, in Fair's Fair, our midwinter special, mm. we were talking about these stories having a performative ceremonial role. Yeah, and I think that the inclusion of a story like that of Arva the Meek, if it's in a ceremonial, a seasonal performative celebration, that makes much more sense than seeing it in this contextless telling of an epic battle. Mm. And the fact that the narrative of that battle actually sidesteps to tell this story, I think that supports this idea that the whole tale was used in a very time and space specific and probably celebratory <laughs> performance. Do you know, I have thought something like that for a very long time, yeah. ever since I first read the saga. Yes, it, yeah. It, it seemed to be a seasonal story, say, that might be told as part of a specific celebration, mm. say the initiation of a new leader. Yes. Now, stories continued to be used in that manner for centuries, right up to almost the current times. Mm. The full telling of this tale might have been used to represent a kind of reset button mm. to indicate the beginning of a new cycle. Yeah. That would be a performance acting as a positive omen for the future, which could also warn of the pitfalls of not holding the established best practice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And we did also discuss in that midwinter special how the performances at Anoinuk would both reaffirm but also recreate the structures of authority. Mm. And the proof of that authority, of course, was in the fertility and fecundity of the land and of its people. Yeah, that made sense to me when I first read it. Yeah. I, I couldn't see how it couldn't be. Even the fact that there were two Moitura stories, yeah. two battles, 27 seven years apart mm. suggested that to me yes. even though I had absolutely no proof yeah 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 it just felt as if it should be yeah well most major oinuk were held at Lunasa weren't they yes uh, and that was the harvest time the harvest time especially for cereal crops mm. so well you can't really leave out a story about the why and how of the harvest when you're telling a story in August yes <laughs> it, it would seem to be a glaring omission wouldn't it but if we go back to our old favourite, or at least one of my old favourites, the poem on Carmen, which gives such a great description of everything mm -hmm. about Oinig, the telling of various tales were part of the privileges of that Oinig. It's there, isn't it? It Written is. It's in. all listed very, very carefully. And it seems sensible that stories would be told which means, by the way, stories performed, which would bear as real relevance to the function of a particular oinok or particular gathering, but also the specific site and the people who are involved. And this is reflected in those, the colophons, that mm -hmm. uh, describe the blessings that would come from the telling of a particular tale. You know, a colophon is almost like a, an epilogue, something that's added on at the end, yes. a coda. Yeah. And there are some that say, uh, oh, uh, a year's blessing on anyone who listens to the whole of the toy. Yes. Or the, the devil could not enter a house where Fenian stories were told. Exactly. And some of these colophons go right down to the late 19th century. Oh, they do. Even they, earlier 20th. Exactly, yeah. They exist into the oral record. Mm. Now, one 
thing I just wanted to say mm -hmm. is that when we're talking about performance, we're not talking about modern theatre. No. We're not talking about an audience and separate actors. Oh, God, We're no. talking about a ritual celebrated with performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's worth maybe thinking about that a bit more sometimes. I think so, yeah. Our discussions in this are definitely influenced by understanding the history of theatre as it developed from mm -hmm. classical theatre and, and from Greek and theatre. And how it, it, particularly how Greek theatre developed yeah. from ritual and celebration mm. and how you can see the remnants of this in a lot of different cultures, including the Minoan yes. and several others. But we can't really go into all that here. No, not right now. <laughs> <laughs> now, going back to Moitura mm -hmm. and going back to Arabin yeah. and uh, the agricultural characters in yeah. the story, it might explain that odd little incident that comes towards the close of the saga after the battle is won. Mm. You know, when the deposed King Bresh is offered the chance of saving his life by advising on the best times to plough, sow and harvest. Mm. Now that little section is considered to be quite obscure. Well, it is insofar as what he actually says is, it's known as the Tree Mart, the Three Tuesdays, uh, where he says, oh well, on a Tuesday the ploughing, on Tuesday the sowing and a Tuesday the reaping. And that is supposed to save his life. Exactly. It, it is enough to save his life. But again, if we think about the whole context, the whole of Moitura, and if that's designed as a paradigm for the upholding of the truth of the king and the restoration of fertility and prosperity, then Brescia's contribution to the peace treaty, it also upholds the importance of agricultural mm. core to the whole saga. And the way that I would imagine those three Tuesdays while we're looking at this story is that you have the metal tip of the sword plough, which is forged by Gaivnu and then wielded by Dian Keacht. Mm. Think of that as ploughing on a Tuesday. And then Meach's restoring of Nuida's natural arm, but himself ending up as being put in the ground, which is sowing on a Tuesday, to Aravid's picking and recording of the herbs like reaping on a Tuesday and then the inclusion of these episodes mm. really does become central. Now I have to say we haven't specifically explained the Tuesdays as such. No. But yeah I absolutely take a point. Yes that it's not so much about being a particular day of the week as doing it in a very particular way and that that's what's important. And there may be a specific reference that we have lost. Oh absolutely yeah but in terms of seeing how it's not just a non sequitur that that's what saves Brescia's life, that actually this is something that's He's not core. talking nonsense. Exactly. It's mm. something that is actually crucial to the entire mm -hmm. process. Yes, he's, he's actually putting the centre of the story at the centre. Yeah. So decoding these name meanings for Mia, Aravid and Dienkecht, it is very revealing. <laughs> yeah. But how do you think the meanings became lost? Well... I wouldn't say that they were lost exactly. They certainly weren't deliberately obscured or written in code. To a contemporary listener, it's a story of the eager plough, Dian Keacht, who's cutting through the grain, Meach, and the harvest is recorded and stored by the enumerator, Aravid. And that just would have been very straightforward to mm, a contemporary mm. audience. But in just the same way that all that archaic poetry, which is retained within the prose, the meanings become less clear as the common language develops and changes. There is something else, though, that added to that. There's a growing uh, separation between farmers and writers. <laughs> yes, I suppose so. 
to the point that medieval glossators no longer understood the difference between copper and silver, if you read the Ogham Kennings and all the glosses on those. But they also had to twist the meaning of Dian Caecht to mean God of Power, because the elite scribes by that time didn't have a clue which end of a plough was which. <laughs> yes, that's good. Now, there's one more aspect of the story of Arvid that I suppose we ought to take another look at, and that's D&K's position as one of the craftsmen. Yes. Um, now, we did look at this in detail when we looked at Maitura. There's an episode which is dedicated to the four craftsmen, which is mm-hmm. D&K along with Galvanuth Smith, who we've already talked about, but also looked at the carpenter or shipwright and Crednacare, the brazier. And in that, we also had a look at their connection to both law texts and to these wonderful little charms, mm-hmm. which I very highly recommend going and looking up because they're they're quite gorgeous. Let it be an of that a dog eats. That's one of my favourite <laughs> lines from those charms. But also, interestingly, I, I wanted to take this opportunity to say there's actually a huge body of both medical and early scientific texts mm-hmm. In the Irish language, we actually have the oldest vernacular medical and scientific texts in Europe. In other words, that are in our own language and not just in Latin. Now, they haven't really been looked at or examined because they're not of interest to the saga texts or the legal historians. And also, they're very often versions of well-known texts that exist in Latin. Uh, on the continent. But there's this creed occur on the UCC website, that's where uh, they host the Celt project, saying they've got all of these wonderful texts and nobody's ever produced an edition, let alone translation. It's surprising how much material there is that's oh, never been translated. Yeah, and this is one particular area, which I think would be a, a beautiful PhD for somebody out there who wanted to go and, and look mm. this up in terms of kind of medieval history of medicine. I think it could be really massive. But to go back to maybe more my slightly more familiar territory, there are, as we discussed previously, those law texts that particularly involve the laws around care of the sick. So you've got the those that look after Uthrasa, which is of being a mm-hmm. patient, and a Crowliga, which is sick lying after you've been injured. And what those texts are concerned with is who's responsible for you. Uh, while you're ill, who pays your medical bills, mm-hmm. what the doctor has to do, what the person who injured you has to do, who does your work. Responsibilities of everybody. Yeah, and there's there's even things such as if you're of childbearing age and you're at Uthras, if you're sick lying in someone else's house, your spouse can legally go off and seek somebody else to have children with while you're away on sick maintenance. Right. That's so. A bit- it's a but, bit tough. But it's, it's in this idea that, well, this person has injured you. It's not your fault. You're then out of your normal role of society. And so it's somebody's responsibility to do your job. And if your job is having children or creating children, then your spouse needs to find that somewhere else. So they're very practical people. You have to say that. Yeah, well, a good example of uh, the laws of care for the sick uh, can be found in the story of Aideen. We yeah. looked at that in detail as well. We certainly did. Do you remember the bit when her brother-in-law became sick unto death while Aideen's husband was away? Yes. And she was responsible for his care, mm. despite, in fact, her ignorance of the fact that she was the cause of his love sickness. Yes. Which a bit it, indirectly. It, yeah, yeah. Well, and yeah, I suppose it is indirect, all right. But yeah, so that her very presence ends up being the cure, even though she doesn't really know that. 
one of the things I like about that episode in the story of Mither and Aideen is that in narrative terms, it's both a crow liga, which is this sick lying when you've been injured, but it's also a shared liga, which is the lovesickness, which of course Cúchulain suffers so badly in, in other stories. So I like that just that little episode brings together that kind of the narrative mm-hmm. and the legal all in one. But there is another example earlier in Aideen about kind of injuries and whose responsibility it is for mm-hmm. taking care of them. And that's right at the beginning where Mither is staying with Oingus, his foster son. But while he's staying there, he's injured by intervening in an argument that's happening. And now it's Oingus's responsibility both to take care of Mither, put him up there and get him his cure and all the rest of it. He also has to then give compensation. And that's really for, where the story begins. And that's it? where the story really starts because part of that compensation package, who should it be but Aideen? So in terms of our current story, medicine therefore has an equivalent status with the other three technologies, carpentry, metalwork and smithcraft. They do. And in many ways, what medicine has is also technology. In the story of Aravid and her family, each healer kind of has their own special technology. What Dian Kecht has at the beginning is this sort of metallurgical, mechanical technology where he gets this wonderful artificial arm. Yeah, which Mm. is so gorgeous and so interesting that Nuda ends up always being called a silver arm, even though he doesn't have it for a long time. He gets rid of it, yeah. Exactly. And there you have Miach, who kind of almost invents surgery and manages to restore the original, the natural flesh arm. Yeah, exactly. And then Aravid, in her way, I like to see her as sitting there inventing a kind of a scientific pharmacology. (laughs) So that little side story, which is regarded as a literary flaw, (laughs) has a huge amount to add to the story of Moitura, doesn't Uh, it? Yes, I think it most certainly does. Especially once kind of more deeply explored and understood. It supports those central themes that are repeated throughout the whole saga. So, thanks be to the fruitfulness of names, <laughs> it allows for so many serendipitous discoveries. Doesn't it? Wonderful. <laughs> Just before we wrap up this particular revisit, there are a few addenda that we want to give to our original episode. Oh yeah, nothing major. Just a few things we said that might benefit from a bit extra clarification. Yeah, I mean, for example, I did say back then, which is now four years ago, that extracts of the yew tree might become an important part of cancer treatments. And in fact, that has come to pass. I think the drug is called taxin. It's certainly derived out of the essences of yew trees, those toxins. And it's a major breast cancer medication. And it's being uh, produced here in Ireland, Mm. which is nice. We also mentioned the paradox of Aravid gathering life-giving herbs from a grave. Well, this no longer surprises us at all. <laughs> no, it really doesn't. I'm We've talked so much about the parallel, ever-present other worlds, all the way through the Imrava, oh, oh, well, yes. all the time. Yeah. In the early Irish stories, it does... Well, death is kind of a two-way portal a lot of the time. It's certainly not the handicap it once was, in every case. <laughs> but we do, of course, now speak so much about that paradoxical quality of poetry Mm -hmm. and what we now know about the place of poetry and how it specifically connects this world and the other world yeah a lot of that came through mungon and if death is a two-way portal it's poetry that keeps it open yeah yeah absolutely it's that important oh it is it's uh, if you haven't got that by now listening to us i don't think we'll (laughs) ever get it across Now, in that original episode, I said that a blemish could cause a king uh, to be removed Mm. from 
his position. Now, it is certainly true in the story of Moitura, and I think in some other sagas. But yes, and it's relevant in Fergus MacNajer. Yes, yeah, it certainly you know, they, is. They, they keep him away from a mirror because he's blemished. Yeah, and because they know that that is enough to make mm-hmm. somebody lose their position. But in historical terms, as I'm sure we've mentioned elsewhere, it's really specific to the kingship of Tara that mm-hmm. it's said to be a gesh for a king with a blemish. So other regional kings could get let off in yes. historical periods. Yes, and I mean, Fergus MacLeodie was Ulster, so maybe they thought, oh, it's not quite so bad, just don't pull out of anywhere near Tara. Yeah, oh yes. And the corn doll that I referred to in the, the original podcast, the one I was given at Bydos. Yes. Now, that is called The Bride of the Corn. Uh, there is an article on the, the website. Mm. I put it up at the time, but I didn't have a chance to talk about it in the podcast. Mm-hmm. Now, I found references to these woven symbols in Winifred Blackman's The Fellahin of Upper Egypt. Now, she saw them regularly used in the Luxor area as late as 1900. Mm. Now, of course, this no, no way proves that they were used in this form in antiquity. Mm. So, any final comments? Uh, well, I think... It's quite clear from this revisit, we've gone through that story of Aravind, which thankfully is relatively neat and self-contained, but it makes its biggest impact in the context of the full story of Moitura. Mm-hmm. And we did do an entire series on that. So there's plenty to delve into. Oh, there is. There's loads in terms of listening, in terms of articles that are on the website. There's a lot there. And as we find so many of these stories, they keep giving. Even, though, even when we come back to they them. They just unwrap and unwrap and unwrap yeah well i hope you enjoyed that update as much as we enjoyed making it yeah and we'll join you again for the next one which will be revisiting bridget thank you for listening to agalith nanagus conversations about irish mythology with the story archaeologists chris thompson and Isolde Obolicorn Carmody. For more information, to subscribe or make a donation, please visit storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on storyarchaeologists at gmail.com.